to Hebrews chapter 9 before we begin. We'll have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you again for the reminder that you are the exalted one. Pray you help us this morning as we open your scriptures that we will, um, in reality, in our lives, in our thinking, in our function, in our words, that, that you will be who you really are, that we will be people who exalt you and praise you and uh, find you of supreme value because that's who you are. So open our eyes this morning in this text to see that very thing. And uh, I pray, Lord, you'll change us and draw us close. In your name I pray, amen. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. In a very real way, Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 14 is continuing the theme of what we've seen already through eight chapters of the book of Hebrews. I want to remind you that what we're talking about is, um, is kind of couched on two big issues of Hebrews so far probably even say three, but it's really one is a subset of another. Number one is the big theme of Hebrews that we've seen so far is what? That Christ, the supremacy of Christ, that Christ is supreme. Appreciate the song this morning because that's exactly what the song said. Uh, this is the one we just sang. So on the one hand, Hebrews is talking about the supremacy of Christ. On the other hand, the, the writer of Hebrews is emphasizing the reality that although Christ is supreme, one of our problems is what? that we have dull ears and we have hard or cold hearts, right? And so the recipients of the, of the letter that is written to the Hebrews are told that on the one hand, Christ is supreme. On the other hand, we have the problem of the cold-heartedness, hard-heartedness and dull ears. And, and what the writer says is as a result in chapter 5, we, he says, we, I find myself having to go back again and again and again to address the things that we shouldn't have to address anymore. And so the idea is he's moving on and he's going to continue with some deeper things. And so what we find in today's text in chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, is interesting because in a very real way what, what the writer of Hebrews does is he goes to some more deeper things, but at the same time they're simple things. Up till now, chapter 6 through 8 have been more in-depth things, but now it's kind of a modified in-depth and simple. It's like it's, it's a smashing together of the two. I'm going to handle the text a little bit differently than I usually handle texts, and that is I'm going to look at it more thematically this morning. Uh, I'm going to emphasize a couple major themes in the text that we're looking at, and hopefully in emphasizing the, the, the couple major themes, you'll understand the text real clearly. You'll be able to think your way through them. So let's just read it first, starting in chapter 9, verse 1, and read all the way through verse 14. Now the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the curtain, the second curtain, was a second section called the most holy place. Having uh, the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, uh, in which was a, a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And by the way, he's just saying I don't want to spend the time talking about it in more detail than that. He's not saying we can't as in it's impossible. He's saying we just don't want to go. I, I, for the sake of discussion, that's all I want to say about it is what he's really saying. Verse 6, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, 
and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, for which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for which, or, I'm sorry, for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Um, uh, wait, let me start over again in verse 14. For how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And that's our text for this morning. If I may just break it down this way, I would say it this way. There are several components that are being discussed in the text that you could describe this way. One is lesser, one is greater in each category. Or one is a copy and one's the original in each category. Does that make sense so far? You have a copy and an original. Or you have an imperfect and a perfect. Or you have a so-so eh, and then you got the best. In each category. Does that make sense so far? And then the text is going to conclude with the statement, what do we do with that? What do we do with all this data? Or what should be the result? It's probably a better way to put it. What should be the result of all this data that he's presenting? So what is he trying to point out? Well, there's several, there's several major themes he's trying to present. And that is, if I may present it to you this way, <coughs> we have a better worship system than the old way. That's number one. We have a better worship system. Number two, we have a better high priest. Number three, we have a better sacrifice. It's really important that we get these three categories. A better worship system, a better high priest, and a better sacrifice. As a matter of fact, we, we would argue that that what he's saying is the one is the copy and the one is the original. Or one is imperfect and the other one is perfect. Um, one doesn't accomplish, the other one accomplishes. So let's break it down. The first category, and it's evidence very clearly in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, is that in the Old Testament they had a worship system. In the Old Testament worship system, like the writer of Hebrews, I don't want to get too far into the weeds on a thing, but in the Old Testament worship system, what the people would do is they'd bring their, their sacrifices to the priest. The priest would, would go in and sacrifice for them, and then and this would take place all the time. It was a very bloody sacrificial system, a bloody worship system. And so the sacrifices were going on all the time, and then once a year, the high priest would go into what is called the Holy of Holies. The, NS, NA, uh, N, blah, the um, ESV calls it the uh, most holy place. It's what we probably know more commonly as the Holy of Holies, 
Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he'd bring a blood sacrifice for the purpose of, first of all, sacrificing for his own sin, seeking atonement for his own sin, and secondly, for the sins of the people. That took place once a year. and Only the high priest could do that. If anybody else went into that area, what would happen to them? They would die. They could not go in there and live. Only the high priest could. Uh, and he could only go in once a year. Um, so what the writer of Hebrews is trying to argue in this first theme with regard to this Old Testament worship system, it was a good worship system for the people of the Old Testament. It wasn't bad. It was a good one. It was designed by God. However, it did something and didn't do something. It's interesting what it, a couple of things it didn't do. One of the things it didn't do is it never brought people close to God. As a matter of fact, by nature, it kept people what? Separated. Because who was the one who could go before God? Just the high priest, right? In the Old Testament sacrificial system, just the high priest could go before God. And that was only what? Once a year. That was only once a year. No other time could he do that. The rest of the people could never. They had to depend upon the high priest to go for them and hope that, the, that, that God, Yahweh, would accept the high priest's blood sacrifice. So the Old Testament worship system left the people in a very real way separated from their God. They could not draw near. And the reason why that was was because the Old Testament sacrificial system, the text says in 6 and following in chapter chapter 9, it says it does this. It sprinkles the people or it, it deals with their what? Their consciences or their flesh? Just the flesh. It, it says it just dealt with the flesh is all it did. It didn't deal with what was going on where? Inside. It didn't change what was going on inside. It only dealt with the external, in other words. The picture that's being presented in Hebrews chapter 9 and elsewhere is that the, the, the point of the Old Testament sacrificial system was to serve as a covering. I said there's several things it didn't do, but there's one thing it did. The purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial system was to cover the sin. And, and it was a temporary covering, but it was to cover the sin of the people. In other words, what it would do is it would temporarily um, cause God to withhold his wrath. Wrath was not removed. Wrath was what? Only withheld. Very big difference. It wasn't removed. It, in fact, it wasn't until, jumping ahead of the gun, but it says at the crucifixion, what, 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 what is described there? The father was satisfied. Very big difference from, from being held back to actually being satisfied, the wrath of God being satisfied. So two things it didn't do, and one thing it did. It covered, but it didn't bring the people near to God, and it did not deal with, with, with the very internal being that, the, that each person is. It only dealt with the externals for all intents and purposes. So what the writer of Hebrews is arguing on the one hand, because of Jesus Christ, remember we're talking about the supremacy of Jesus, right? When Jesus fulfilled the law, what Jesus did, quite to the contrary to anything in the old worship system, is that in the new worship system, now we can now come where? 
we can come near to God, can't we? What was that, Tom? Boldly to the throne of grace. Now, for the first time, we can come near. Where before we, we could not come near, now we can come near. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that we find out right away is because the sacrificial system itself is different. Again, one is a copy, a picture of, the other one is a perfect one. So, but before we get to the, to the sacrifice, we want to talk about the high priest. Because it talks about the high priest here. And I forgot, there's one other thing. There's actually four. I knew in my mind there's four different uh, themes. The fourth theme is, is uh, we have a different building as well. A different building. So let's talk about the high priest real quick. We ha they had, a, in the Old Testament system, they had, a, they had a high priest that would go for them and offer sacrifice for them every year. And, but it, what's interesting, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament worship system, you had a high priest who had a problem, didn't he? What was his problem? His own sin. You had an Old Testament high priest who had a problem, and the text even tells us that. In the Old Testament system, worship system, the high priest had to, first of all, offer sacrifices for himself. So he was not immune, and we've seen that already in Hebrews. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, in the Old Testament worship system, the, the high priest wasn't immune, immune from the problems. He was smack dab in the center of problems like everybody else was. He was just like everybody else. The only difference is he was identified as a person that God would accept in the Holy of Holies. In the New Testament, this better thing, the copy is done away with, as we saw in the last chapter, the copy is done away with because why? Because now there is a now perfect high priest, and that perfect high priest, the writer of Hebrews identifies as Jesus Christ. He is the perfect high priest, that's in the, and he's a different type of high priest, isn't he? How is he a different high priest outside of being perfect? What do we see in the previous chapters? No beginning, no end, which means he's described in Hebrews as being out of the line of Melchizedek, right? Instead of the typical line of all the priests. So he, he is a different, and not just different, but he is the perfect high priest in comparison to the imperfect, which were merely copies or pictures of the perfect high priest that for the Old Testament people was yet to come. Thirdly, then, let's talk about the building. They had a building, actually a tabernacle. At first, it was a tent, and then it became a permanent facility, uh, the, the temple. Um, but what does he say? Again, here in this text, he describes these in this theme re referencing the temple. He says in the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, what they had is they had a tabernacle. But the tabernacle was what? Once again, it was merely temporary and even the temple itself not just the tabernacle but the temporary the, the temple was also merely t temporary wasn't it as we know they went through three of them because they kept on getting destroyed but more importantly even than it, it was temporary the old tabernacle in the old covenant and the old temple that came afterwards not only were they temporary but they also were imperfect they were, as the text describes here in chapter 9, they were a copy. 
But he says, as we look at the new covenant, everything has changed because no longer do we have a copy of the tent and no longer do we have a imperfect or temporary tent. We now have a perfect tent. There is now in the new worship system of the new covenant, there is a perfect, you could add in permanent, you could also add in not earthly. It's not on the earth. It's something outside of that, outside of this world. What is he referencing in the text in, in verses 1 through 14 here? Well, he's referencing heaven. The perfect tent is heaven. The old, in the old covenant worship system, the high priest would enter into an imperfect, temporary, earthly copy. It's called the tabernacle or later on the temple. And he'd perform a copy, an imperfect worship that pictured something greater. The writer of Hebrews is saying the lesser has been done away with by the greater. Or another way to put it is the copy has been put away with by the original. Or another way to put it is the temporary has been put away with by the by the eternal. And that new tent, worship place, is glory. What's so significant about that? Well, what's significant about that is that in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, they, the high priest would go. We add all these things together now, and the old high priest would go and bring this copy of a sacrifice, an imperfect sacrifice, perfect by the law, but imperfect, because it could do what? It only cover. And you bring it into a temporary, imperfect copy of something greater. Everything is an imperfect copy of something greater. What is argued in the text is that in the new covenant that you and I have, we have now this perfect tent, as it were. That's the word he uses. And in this perfect tent, we find out that the new high priest, the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ, has entered and remains there. As a result of that, the argument is that in Hebrews, that now we have, whereas before we didn't, we now have access to God. We have access to the Holy of Holies. We have access to, we can draw near. How is that possible? Well, ultimately, it's summed up in one more copy of an original, imperfect and perfect. And the picture in this imperfect, perfect, temporary, permanent, temporary, eternal um, copy, original, is in the Old Testament, they had to bring goats and lambs and, and heifers and, and, and other things. And they would bring them and they would... Uh, sacrifice them and blood would be sprinkled and ashes would be spread and they have to do it over and over and over and over and you all know this over and over and over again to have their sins covered looking forward to the day when according to Hebrews the perfect lamb of God would come which we know of as Jesus he would come who is also the high priest and he would sacrifice himself 
and his blood would not be a over and over and over again needing to be sacrificed. It would be a one-time sacrifice. It would be a permanent sacrifice with permanent effects. And the point of it is, is this very thing, is that because the, the perfect has come, the, t- the old covenant, the temporary, the imperfect, the copy is all put away with, and the ramifications of this are dramatic. Because if all those other things were temporaries and copies and imperfects, and the new is all permanent, eternal, perfect, original, and if all that is applied to you and me, then it remains, and it has a continuing effect, and it never goes away, and that's the point. And so what he says in in the text is that very thing. Starting in verse 11, but Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Notice he didn't say that will come. He says have come. Then uh, then through the greater and more perfect tent, heaven, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. You can sense what I'm talking about now, can't you? He says he entered once for all into the holy places, referring to the holy of holies or in heaven. Not by means of the blood uh, of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Remember we said in the Old Covenant, it was an ongoing thing, and it wasn't ever a redemption. Right? We saw that it was, it was, it, 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 all it did was deal with, and we see it in a second again here, it just did, dealt with the outside. Notice what he says. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, right, flesh, so it doesn't provide redemption. It just deals with dealing with the flesh. He goes on and says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Verse 14 is the key of the entire text. What the writer of Hebrews wants to drive us to is verse 14. What he's been doing all along in the last couple of chapters is doing what? Comparing the old with the new. What he's doing from all the way back to chapter 1 is showing the supremacy of Christ over what? All things. And didn't he, even in chapter 1, show us the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Jesus Christ over Moses, what else? Angels and prophets, right? So he's connecting the angels not so much, but for the first two, he's connecting them dramatically to where? He's connecting them to the Old Testament, isn't he? The Old Covenant. And then you see that theme continuing. Supremacy of Christ. Why is the author of Hebrews repeating this over and over and over again? Here's why. Because you and I are people who what? Have a tendency to what? To forget, and, and using the Hebrew terms, we tend to forget and it demonstrates itself or it's described as having a cold heart or a hard heart or dull hearing what we're discovering in verse 14 is this if i'm actually the whole text but it's summed up in verse 14 it's this what the writer of hebrews is saying our tendency to forget as tom said hard heart cold heart dull hearing tends to show up over and over and over again what what is that all about 
if we want to sum it all up or try to capture it in our thinking, what is that all about? Forgetting what? You don't have to answer this question, Tom. I'm just throwing the question out there. I'm going to answer it in a second. Forgetting what? We say, well, we have a tendency to forget. Well, forget what is the question, right? We've got to ask ourselves that. Because we certainly don't forget everything, do we? We don't forget everything, but we do forget some things, don't we? We don't get a hard heart about everything, do we? By very definition, if I get a hard heart about something, it's because I have a, yes, because I got a warm heart about something else. Or a, or, or, a, or a soft heart. If I get a cold heart, I get a warm heart, right? I, I'm not cold heart unless I'm dead, right? If I'm dead, physically, I have a cold heart, hard heart, really dull of hearing, right? <laughs> really dull of hearing. For living people, the, the writer of Hebrews is not saying we got a cold heart or hard heart or, or dull of hearing about everything. It's about something or about some things. So what is he talking about with this cold heart, hard heart, dull of hearing? About what? Well, the key is what we find everywhere in the book of Hebrews. We get a cold heart. We get a, a hard heart. We get a, we get dull hearing about this one thing. If I may sum it up, we get it about the perfect. We get it about the permanent. We get it about the original. You know what I'm talking about? Because the perfect, the original, The eternal is Jesus. When we talk about getting a hard heart, a, a cold heart, dull of hearing, it's not about Christianity in general. It's not about religion in general. That's something, that's a totally different category. That's a Demas thing, isn't it? He loved the present world, so he left, right? That's a Demas thing. What he's talking about here is dull hearing, hard heart, cold heart, is focused purely and simply on the new sacrifice. It's focused purely and simply on the, on the, um, the new worship system. It's focused purely and simply on the new tent, as it were. So if our hearts get cold, hard, if our, if our ears get dull about Jesus, about the new worship system, which is focused on Jesus, if, 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 we, if we get those three category things going on in our lives about heaven, well, heaven's about Jesus, isn't it? Right? It, you realize heaven's not primarily about where I'm going to spend eternity. Heaven's primarily about Jesus. If we get our hearts cold, if we find our hearts to be hard, if we find ourselves dull of hearing with regard to Jesus, with regard to the new worship system, with regard to the new sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, with regard to the new tent, then our hearts must be warm about something else. 
Our hearts must be soft about something else. Our hearts must be, our, our ears must be live, sensitive to something else. Well, what is that something else? That's a really important question. This text tells us, it hints at it, but overall the whole entirety of Hebrews emphasizes it very strongly. Look at verse 14 again. Start in verse um, 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let me ask you a question. In verse 13 and 14, what do you think if our hearts are hard, cold, and our ears are dull to Jesus and the things of Jesus, what do you think 13 and 14 tell us that most likely our hearts are warm, soft, and our ears are sensitive to? Got to think about it a little bit. What do you think? Which would be the temporary, which would be the law. It'd be the law. Our problem is that we, we find ourselves regularly, do we not? We find ourselves regularly again and again and again getting caught up in the temporary. We get ourselves caught up in the, the, the copy. We get ourselves caught up in the uh, imperfect Elsewhere in Hebrews, we get caught up in the thing that has been done away with. Or to quote another passage in Hebrews, we get caught up in the thing that is obsolete. Does that make sense so far? Now, what gets really weird, if I may say this, and the author of Hebrews in several places kind of hints at this, because the, the Jews in Jesus' day and in the writer of Hebrews' day did it repeatedly, and that is we not only get caught up in the thing that is imperfect, we make it even more imperfect. It's really kind of weird. We don't just get caught up in the imperfect. We, get, we actually move beyond it. We get caught up in the imperfect by evaluating ourselves by what? By the imperfect, by how well we interact with and respond to the imperfect. We evaluate ourselves by how well we do, how well I do today. How well did I, to use a more crass form or term, how well did I perform today? Now, we would never actually use that term. But I, I kind of like that term because it is a performance. And we evaluate ourselves by that type of thing. But, you know, usually here's what happens. We're not happy with that because you know as well as I do that if you're really looking at the law, what do you find out? Yeah, fall short, right? You crash and burn. You can't measure up even with that imperfect standard, right? You just can't. Well, the text tells us that, right? Not, not chapter 9, but earlier, right? What were we told repeatedly that very same thing? It cannot redeem. It cannot bring someone to redemption. It can only show us how we failed. That's what it does. And so what we do, and the Jews did it too, they wrote a whole book on it called the Talmud. They established all their own laws. 
And some of the laws were crazy. Some of them were connected to the law, like just fleshing out the law. Like, for example, uh, the, the Pharisees in, in Jesus' day, they, cer they certainly believed what the law said, that you can't work on Sunday, on Saturday, sorry. You can't work on Saturday. And so what they would do is they came up with all sorts of laws for how you can live within that. And so, for example, you, you, uh, you, if you traveled more than a certain distance, I forgot what it was, like 400 yards or something like that. If you traveled more than 400 yards, for sake of example, um, you would now be working on Sunday. Or Saturday, sorry. I said it again. You'd be working on Saturday, unless you were going to the temple, of course. You'd be working. And so what they would do, according to the, the law that they wrote to add to the law, is they would carry a bunch of clothes with them. I don't know if I ever told you about this before. They'd carry a bunch of clothes with them. And as they walked, they would come that distance, and they'd lay down an article of clothing, and they'd say, hey, look, here's my clothes. This is where I live. Now they can go 400 more yards. And they'd lay another article of clothes down, and they'd say, oh, look, my clothes. Here's where I live. And they could go 400 yards more. I mean, bizarre, isn't it? It's crazy, isn't it? Do you realize we do the same thing? Because we can't live by the law. Can we? We will find every time we will what? Fail. Can't help it. And so we conveniently come up with all sorts of other laws to follow. You know, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. And somehow I evaluate if I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do, I must be doing all right. Now, I'm joking about the smoke, drink, or chew thing, but you get the idea. Although I'm not. I don't, I don't date girls that chew, even though I'm single. That's a whole other issue. Uh, <laughs> but you get my point. We create all sorts of laws, and what kind of laws do we create for ourselves? Laws that we can what? We can keep, right? And so we evaluate ourselves not even by God's laws anymore, but we evaluate ourselves by what? Our law that we've conveniently created that work for us. And you know what we've done? We've gotten, we've gotten really dull ears. We've got really hard hearts. We've got really cold hearts about the perfect. About the one who's come to get rid of all that garbage. Now the law of God isn't garbage, but all the rest of it is. But even the law of God of the Old Testament was imperfect. It did what it was supposed to do, but it could not bring us to redemption. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is, we all have a problem. We all have this problem. We find ourselves rushing back to the thing that's become obsolete. We keep finding ourselves rushing back to the things that cannot do what we hope they do for us. That's why in verse 14, he says, how much more will the, if, if all these other things did this amazing thing, let's, let's, let's clarify, they did, right? The, the heifers and all the other animals that were sacrificed did an amazing thing, didn't it? Before Christ came. It protected them from the wrath of God temporarily. That's, a, that's pretty amazing. By the way, that's only God's mercy. Because <laughs> they didn't do anything, did they? That's only God's mercy. But if they did this effectively, protecting the people by merely just doing purification for the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Notice what he says. Because it's kind of a complicated section. Or kind of complicated verse. He says, if they did that, how much more will the blood of Christ do what? Purify our conscience. If the Old Testament sacrifices were effective, and can I ask you a quick question? Were they effective? At, I mean, they were effective at protecting from wrath, right? As covering, because God declared that they would do that, right? If God declared, if you'll wear a black sweater every day forever, 24-7, then I won't pour wrath on you. Well, the black sweater would do its job, right? Not because the black sweater is anything. It's just because God's merciful and he declared it. But did, as we look at the Old Testament, did the what God said would do this work to protect them from the wrath of God, did it work? Well, yeah, it did. You don't see God's wrath in its full vent pouring on the people, do you? Ain't nowhere. They're protected all through the Old Testament. But if that's true, then we, we know something, don't we? That God is what? If, if that's what happened in the Old Testament, what do we know about God? He's what? He, he, he keeps his word, doesn't he? He's reliable. He's faithful. You can bank on it. He never, ever went back on that all through the Old Testament, didn't he, Jim? Never went back on it. What would you say, uh, Tom? We also see his mercy, don't we? We see his mercy dramatically displayed because we know that the sacrifices really did nothing. They accepted God's promise. So we see the mercy. But if we can look at the Old Testament and recognize these two things, as well as many others, and we know that God is who he says he is and does what he says he's going to do, well, how much more confidence can we have in Jesus? That's what the text is all about. If we slow down and look at it and say, what has God said about the sacrifice of the perfect lamb? What has he said about what he will do? What did he say about this, ha- this happening? It said again, his wrath was what? Satisfied. Satisfied. And we know today as a result that Jesus is where? In the right hand of the Father, right? He's in the perfect tent, right? Not made with hands. And he's doing what? Interceding for you. And it's a present active, isn't it? It's ongoing. He's interceding for you. And he's made all sorts of other promises based upon his completed sacrifice, right? We know that the that the that the, um, the veil was what? At his crucifixion. It was rent in two, right? I did it backwards. It was rent in two from top to bottom. And the Holy of Holies was exposed. And the scriptures tell us over and over again that we can now enter boldly. Why? Because of his mercy. Right, Tom? Because of mercy. And Jim, because he's truth, isn't he? And he keeps his word. So if the Old Testament sacrificial system did what God said it would do, and it did, how much more, ask yourself this really important question, how much more will this new sacrifice do for you? How much more will this new tent, not made with hands, do? How much more will this new worship, worship system do? How much more will the perfect do? How much more will the eternal do? How much more 
will the eternal be? How much more will the original be? How much more? That's what verse 14 is about. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, and the implication for you, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience? And notice what it says. And notice the contrast between conscience and flesh. They did it for the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ deal with your conscience? And the obvious implication is eternally more. Because the, the sacrifices didn't even make a dent with regard to the people's conscience. And conscience is referencing their internal, their soul. How much more will this new high priest sacrifice, worship system, tent, Christ, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience? And that's what he says, from what? Dead works. Very important we hear this. From dead works. What was he referring to when he says dead works? Well, this is really crucial. When he says, how much more will, it pure, will, will the blood of Christ purify us, purify our conscience from dead works? He's talking about something really important. Because dead works are works that somehow I've convinced myself will do what? Will either save, that's one category, save or do anything for me. Right? I mean, let's be really honest. How much, how much more will he purify us from think in our souls? From thinking that anything I do can somehow gain me anything. It's dead work. If I think that what I do can do anything for me with regard to standing for God, it's what? By very definition, it's what? It's dead. Why is it dead? Be exactly because Christ did the work. He was the perfect sacrifice. That's the tax. That's the whole point. Christ was the perfect sacrifice. He did not on the cross say, between Steve and I, it's finished. At least it doesn't say that in my Bible. Right? And Jesus, God, God the Father didn't look down and say, well, between Jesus and Steve, I'm satisfied. He didn't say that, did he? No. It, he saw Christ's work and was satisfied. It is finished, Jesus said, because he did the work. Any work we think that will either save us, as you said, Jim, or, and I want to make sure we bring it to this category, or put us in a better standing before God, because the writer of Hebrews is writing to people who are saved people supposedly saved people, and yet they're confused, not about justification, but even about their sanctification. It's both. Because they're thinking not just in the justification category, but often this also the sanctification category, that somehow I can do something that puts me in a better standing before God. And you can't. He did it all. We sing the song, right? He did it all, all to him I owe. Right? Not part to him, not even majority to him, not even 99% to him. All. And I know the song's not inspired, but it captures the, the, the scriptures very well. All to him I owe. He washed it white as snow, right? 
I bring nothing to the table but my sin. My hope is not based upon anything I do today. My hope is upon what? Christ's crucifixion, right? Christ's sacrifice, the perfect lamb. My only hope is based upon that he has gone to the tent that he's not made his hands. He's not of his creation. My only hope is that he's in that tent doing what? Advocating for me before the Father. That's my only hope. My only hope is that, that, that he's given me his righteousness if you want to fill it all the way out. So that when I stand before him in judgment, he's not going to see me. He's going to see his righteousness. So he sees me, I'm doomed. I'm doomed. And so he says, if the Old Testament sacrifices could do what it did, and it did, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience from dead works, from being deceived into thinking the way we typically think about our lives? and about our activities, and about our responses, and about the way we live. But notice what he goes on and says. Can purify our conscience from dead works to what? Not to nothingness, but to what? To serve the living God. Wait a second. Dead works? He just said purify our conscience from dead works, right? Now he's talking about works, isn't he? He just said purify our conscience from dead works to work. You pick that up? He didn't use the word, the word work the second time, but he said it, didn't he? Serve sounds like work, right? Sounds like activity. You don't serve passively, do you? Serving is always active. He says to purify our, our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. What's the difference? Really important. What's the difference? Okay, good. Holy Spirit initiated. It even says it right in the verse, doesn't it? Right before that, it implies it right there. Who through the Spirit him offered himself without blemish to God. So the Spirit was at work in, in Jesus through that process. And the implication is that it continues into us. And the Scriptures elsewhere argue that very strongly. So it's Holy Spirit initiated on one hand, but it's, it's, it's driven by something radically different, isn't it? The point of the text is that this perfect sacrifice takes us and, and, and rescues us from this mess in our conscience, in our soul, to think that dead works somehow are valuable and moves us from that category to a totally different category. And the totally different category is this. It still works. It's still activity. It's still serving. But it's very different. Where The first one is the category, and you've heard me talk about this before, where I can do something. That benefits the whole thing. My standing before God in some way. I'm better because I did this. I stand in a better position before God because I did that. I witnessed to my neighbor, so therefore now I'm in a better standing uh, before God. I'm somehow going to receive blessing for that. And somehow I, 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 I get a pat on the back and somehow I, I'm in a better position. Or I, um, I had my devotions today, so, so now I'm in a better position before God. Or, or I prayed today, so now I'm in a better position before God. Or, or I ministered to somebody who's grieving, so now I'm in a better position before God. All those are dead works. Every one of those are. I mean, the work itself is a good thing. It's not evil, right? 
You know, if you, if you pray, that's a good thing, right? If you minister to somebody, that's a good thing, right? If you read the scripture, that's a good thing. If you witness to somebody, that's a good thing, right? All those things are good things, but it's the motive from the conscience. Why are we doing what we're doing? It's what's the goal? What's the end goal? What's the purpose? This moving from that to serving the living God is focused on something totally different. You see over here, I'm focused on where? <laughs> yeah, I'm focused right here. This other category, to go on to serve the living God, is focused where? On the living God. It's pretty clear in the text, isn't it? It's a focus on the living God. It's a change of heart where the focus is now on the new worship system, the new sacrifice, the new high priest, the new tent, the permanency, the superiority, all wrapped up in Jesus. The focus is radically different between the two. One is I'm focused where? On myself. Accomplishing something. Tasks. Things I got to do. On, on, on. All these things. Over here it's all things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever. Amen. Over here it's, it's a focus on the amazing sacrifice. The stunning work that Christ has done. Over here it's a focus on, on this stunning new worship system where, where it's a once for all sacrifice. It's focused on a high priest that's advocating for me. It's focusing on this new permanent dwelling that's not made with hands. It's focused on it is finished. It's focused on the love of Christ. It's focused upon the superiority of Jesus. It's a, it, it's, it's a place where one finds themselves consumed with knowing Jesus. Reveling in Jesus. Growing and being enthralled with Jesus because that's where their, their heart is hot after knowing Jesus. And the result is that person who's been rescued from a, having a conscience of dead works finds themselves now, everything's changed. They're still doing works. But the result is now their works are being driven by a different fuel, if I may use the term. It's a fuel that is uh, focused on recognizing the love of Christ for them, toward them. It's, it's, it's a focus upon how amazing Jesus Christ is and what he's accomplished and what he's promised and what he's already fulfilled and what he has yet to fulfill and how much he loves me. And as the Spirit, going back to what Tom said, as the Spirit is at work in me, reminding me of these things, you know what I find myself doing? I find myself just wanting to what? Work, because I want to express my love by the one who first loved me. You see, it's amazing how often we, we have the attitude of, well, I just need to know what I need to do. I just get the attitude of, I just got to know what I need to accomplish. What's the standard I got to do? I got to follow. Just tell me. And I hear it all the time in counseling. I got this problem, tell me how I can fix it. 
not about fixing your problem. Never is, never was. Unless we talk about your problem of being having a hard heart, cold heart, dull hearing. And that's a problem we can talk about fixing. But the answer is always the same, isn't it? No, it's nuanced difference all over the place. But ultimately, it, <coughs> it is what? Repent and believe. Ultimately, it's always what? Taste and see that he is good. Not the law, not the rules. He is good. Ultimately, it's always drink from the spring of living water. Right? Isn't that what it always is? It's always coming back to who is Jesus. What has he accomplished? What is he accomplishing? Who is he? Which is why for so long we've been asking the question, who is Christ and why is he so worthy of our worship, right? Because ultimately, if we're not answering those questions in robust ways and in growing ways, and we're not finding ourselves enthralled not with what we need to do, but who is Jesus, then we're still where? Chasing after dead works. And we have dull hearing, cold and hard hearts. If we find ourselves being drawn to, I got to do this, got to do this, got to do this, just tell me what I got to do, I got to do this, got to do this, got to accomplish this, got to think this way, got to say these things, got to go here, got to do, you know what? Our ears are dull because we're not hearing Jesus. Our hearts are cold, our hearts are hard because they're warm and they're soft to something else. So the question before us is this, who is Jesus and why is he wor so worthy of our worship? And the question before us more specifically is, is your heart hard or soft to Jesus? Is your heart warm or cold toward Jesus? Are your ears dull or sensitive to Jesus? Do you find yourself meditating on, dwelling on, fellowshipping with Jesus or do you find yourself meditating on and fellowshipping with what you need to do in this religion called Christianity one is dull hard and cold and one is soft and warm and very sensitive and one is merely saying I love the one who first loved me and the other one ultimately is saying, I don't believe that Christ's death and sacrifice was sufficient. And I don't think he's as good of an advocate as he says he is. And I don't think the old law system, the old religious system was really obsolete. It may not be the best, but it wasn't really obsolete. So I just encourage you to wrestle with that today and this week and consider where is my heart? Where am I? With regard to Jesus. And Ken, you said it. <coughs> if we find ourselves cold, hard, dull hearing, the answer, he gives it to us so clearly. It's Old Testament, New Testament. Return. Right? Return. Come back to Jesus. Learn of Jesus. Fellowship with Jesus. Cry out for Jesus to open your eyes to see him. 
understand the beauty of his mercy and grace toward you. And the cry out to him to protect you from a having a stupid conscience that thinks that old dead law works are valuable at all. Cry out to him to change your heart so that your response is a response of love to the one who first loved you. So you find yourself living your life thinking about the love of Christ and what he has and is accomplishing for you. He's amazing. More amazing than we could possibly can imagine. It almost sounds silly to say it, doesn't it? More amazing than we could possibly can imagine. So let us probe him together, shall we? And learn of him and taste and see if he's good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. We freely acknowledge that we do tend to have cold and hard hearts and dull hearing. We freely acknowledge that we do find ourselves rushing back, just like people have all through history, back to things that cannot save. And so, Lord, I pray you'll help us. Help us to remember you. Help us to remember what you've accomplished. Help us to remember that you are the perfect one. You are not the copy. You are not the 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 <coughs> temporary. You are the the you are the the permanent, the eternal. You're not the imperfect, you're the perfect. And so Lord, please help us to remember you. In your name I pray. Amen.